1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Tejas Parashar. I'm joined today by Erin Pineda, author of the new book, Seeing Like an Activist, Civil Disobedience and the Civil Rights Movement. Erin Pineda is Assistant Professor of Government at Smith College, and her research interests include the politics of protest and social movements, Black political thought, race and politics, radical democracy, and 20th century American political development. Erin received her PhD in political science from Yale University in 2015, and prior to joining Smith College, she was Provost Postdoctoral Scholar in political science at the University of Chicago, where she was a faculty affiliate of the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. Her book, which we'll be discussing today, is titled Seeing Like an Activist, Civil Disobedience and the Civil Rights Movement, and it has just been published by Oxford University Press. The book provides an alternative account of the American civil rights movement in contrast to the accepted view of the movement as marked by fidelity to law, commitment to civility, and allegiance to American democracy. The book shows us how civil rights activists, in concert with anti-colonial movements across the globe, turn to civil disobedience in order to more fundamentally transform the racial order. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And Erin, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Great. So since this is your first book, I wanted to just get a sense of where it came from. How did you arrive at the topic of civil disobedience within the American Civil Rights Movement? First in your dissertation and then in the book.
0: Sure. Um, so I, I started graduate school wanting to work on social movements and dissent kind of at the intersection of political theory and comparative politics, and um wasn't necessarily wedded to focusing exclusively on the U- US. And in fact, when I started my dissertation project, um, it was around 2011, and so um, the the two examples that were kind of um, at the forefront of my mind were Occupy Wall Street, um, but also the Arab Spring uprisings. Um, so I had a, a sort of more global focus in mind. Um, and then, you know, within political theory, um, my focus started off broader than civil disobedience in that I was. I really started off thinking about the right to resist, um, in liberal and democratic theory in the history of political thought and thinking about how, you know, say within the social contract tradition, how, um, the right to resist gets, uh, narrowed and undercut almost in the, the moment of its explication. Um, thinking about the ways that, that a lot of liberal and democratic thought is, is very, um, state stabilizing, state justifying, that's one of its underlying purposes, and how that that sort of undercuts an idea of legitimate resistance. Um, And so as I started to work on that um, and started to narrow in focus, I really uh, became fascinated by a kind of instance of that problem that I saw operating within the civil disobedience literature um, that is the way that it both worked um, to sort of articulate and describe the US civil rights movement and, and justify it, while also um, narrowing the grounds for resistance and disobedient dissent, um, and and also in a way j- just kind of contorting what I saw as um, the historical articulations of the movement, um, and leaving little room for... Um, the ideas and political theories that might come out of or emerge out of activism itself. Um, and so that really became the focus of the project then this entanglement between civil disobedience and the history of the civil rights movement. Um, and then trying to think about, um, how histories of activism become kind of proof proofs of concept or object lessons for political theory, rather than its sources of political theory itself. Um, so, you know, having focused on that or, or sort of narrowed to that, that's really what the dissertation became about, um, and, and then ultimately uh, what I ended up making making into the book.
1: Great. And the title that you chose for the book does a lot of work. Um, seeing Like an Activist is, of course, a reference to James Scott's uh, seminal work, Seeing Like a State from 1998. And you re- reinterpreted uh, this fa- phrase both to mean seeing like a white state, um, to refer to American democracy. And then you later ask what it might mean for us to start seeing like an activist. So could you say a little bit about how you're playing with Jim Scott's ideas here?
0: Sure. Um, that's a great question. So so Jim, you know, in full, the spirit of full disclosure, Jim was a, a dissertation advisor of mine. So part of the reference is also an homage. Um, but as I was just trying to articulate, um, you know, one of the problems that I was trying to name, both in the dissertation and the and in the book. Um, is the way that political theories, um, even in the midst of trying to justify or theorize dissent and activism and, and all kinds of uh, disobedient political activity, um, in the same moment that they're trying to justify them, um, you know, many modes of political theory sort of take up the problem of maintaining or stabilizing or justifying the state as, a, as its primary end. So within the dissertation, I was trying to think about the ways that... Um, political theories themselves can see like a state that is take on those ends of maintaining a, a legitimate state order um, as their own and, and the ways that those kind of become primary and can override the purposes or undermine the purposes of thinking through the dynamics of dissent um, and, and justifying dissent. And as I continued to develop the the project, I, I started to realize that it wasn't um broadly a problem of political theory seeing like a state. It was more specifically the ways that um, that adopting this mode of maintaining a presumptively legitimate order um excludes or um uh, sort of um keeps out of view the ways that that the states that that populate the the modern world are also states of domination and often racial states. So in the case of the U.S., um, within the political theory, the presumption that the U.S. is is always already a legitimate democracy leaves out the possibility that it's a racially dominating state and has been for its entire history. Um, so this is how I, I came upon the idea of not just seeing like a state, but seeing like a white state or, or seeing like a white democracy um, that is seeing in such a way that the um, that the legitimacy of the constitutional order, the, the ends of constitutional integrity and stability, um, are, are taken for granted and the white citizen is sort of coded or assumed as the normative ideal. Um, and, and within this framework, the, the problem of racial domination, um, it is figured as as kind of exceptional, aberrant, um, purely within domestic borders, and and really almost a technical problem that's that's already answered in a way or already addressed by the constitutional order's own um, own norms and principles and and um, way of ordering democratic life. So as you noted, this is quite a different use than Jim Scott. Um, employs in seeing like a state. You know, he's thinking about these big state building projects of, of what he calls high modernism um, and really thinking about maps and forest planning and, and all of the these ways that's, that literal state planners um, churned out the ways of knowing um, and, and the kinds of epistemological orders and, and techniques of management to turn citizens into these routinized, regular, measurable entities um, so what I'm, what I'm thinking about is quite different and, and maybe a little bit less concrete in that way. Um, but I think it's, it also names a, a particular vantage point or framework, um, and is in its own way, a form of rationalism, a, a way of turning citizens in, into a racialized, um, but nevertheless regular entity.
1: And this kind of vantage point is adopted in post-war, uh, political and legal theory, not just by strands that we might call liberalism, but I think one of the things I, Got from your chapter one is just how widespread this view of civil disobedience was. So we don't just have j- the John Rawls of political liberalism, uh, but you also mentioned Michael Walzer, even Habermas. Um, so could you just say a little bit about about more about why uh, you think civil disobedience and particular interpretations of the civil rights movement become so central for such a wide array of political theory?
0: Yeah, that's the a really good question, and and you're right. It it is. Um... It is much wider than just sort of canonical liberals and encompasses um, figures working more explicitly within a a tradition of democratic theory, um, Habermas and others working in uh, on democratic deliberation um, and and within more uh, continental uh, traditions of political thought. Um, And so I think, you know, the the answer to your question is quite complicated in a way, because I think, uh, you know, as I try to argue in the book, one of the things um, that cements the civil rights movement as this particular kind of example that's tied to political theorizing in, in this way um, has to do with the history and the uptake of the movement itself and the way that the sort of political formation of the civil rights movement as a particular kind of example, um, which, which is happening concurrently with a lot of the, the theorizing of civil disobedience in the sixties and seventies and, and share some general features with it. So, one of the um, one of the things that I try to lay out in the book is is the way that you know almost concurrent with its uh, with its happening, the civil rights movement already gets reformulated um, and domesticated in a way as as internal to the existing order, as re- deeply reformist, as no as posing no real threat to the kind of constellation of principles and laws and ideas that are already formative of of American democracy. Um, And this happens for uh, for a range of reasons, but I think interestingly, it happens because of moves that both liberals and conservatives make at the same time. So conservatives are attacking the movement as deeply undermining of law and order as illegitimate, um, trying to paint any kind of civilian law breaking um, as beyond the pale. And you have a constellation of liberals at the same time trying to defend the movement, but also to bring it to a close, um, to to sort of treat it as a kind of symbolic movement that has made a claim that has, has some real bearing on American democracy, but now needs to be taken into the legislature and the courts. Um, and so that kind of pacifying, domesticating move is the same one that uh, liberal and democratic thinkers try to make. It It, share, it shares some... Uh, it shares a movement um, w- with the kind of moves that I see in in political theory. Um, and I think, you know, again, this happens within political philosophy of various kinds for a range of reasons, um, one of which just has to do with the, um, the kind of figuration of the U.S. within political theory. And it's kind of um, often unquestioned status as a liberal democratic order. Um, you know, even in the midst of the '60s and '70s, um, it has this kind of unquestioned status that it is a more or less legitimate regime, and it, it goes without saying almost for for this set of philosophers that segregation is a moral and political wrong, that it's anti democratic, and all of these things. But it doesn't seem to actually threaten the status of the U.S. for any of them, um, and and so for this range of reasons, for a whole set of theorists who who otherwise disagree quite a bit. Um, the example gets taken up in this way as, as proof, um, both that the U S is a certain kind of democracy, but that also it's, it's reformable that, and that this kind of dissent can be, uh, a democratic good.
1: Yeah. And the language of the constitution and a certain kind of American creed seems to be really central to that, right. That, um, through the history of racism, America has fallen away from its constitutional promises and these, movements in a sense are trying to return America to its roots.
0: Yes, absolutely. That that kind of American exceptionalism um, is really shot through. And even, you know, as you referenced for somebody like Habermas, who we might, you know, not a, a US theorist, um, we might think of him as not having any particular allegiance to that that frame or any reason to take it up. Uh, but the US becomes for him a real key example of a, of a kind of Of constitutional patriotism, of of Mm -hmm. the kind of space where those kinds of intense attachments um, that can sustain uh, real democratic change and real democratic movements outside of a religious or um, uh, non secular framework, you know, that this is a real example for him for for those reasons, Um, and I, I think. You know, so it, it's a different kind of orientation than than say Rawls or Walter, uh, but but it leads him to likewise, I think, uh, underestimate the the real force of white supremacy in the U.S.
1: Yeah, and in breaking away um, from this narrative that reduces the civil rights movement to kind of a fulfillment of the American creed, you you, you put it into really different and novel context. So one of the most exciting parts of the book for me was this idea of an entire world in motion which you discuss in chapter two. So you situate the civil rights movement in the context of a global interest in civil disobedience between 1920 and 1960, often directed towards um, various forms of European imperial rule. Now, I I think like many, I I was familiar with the interactions between African-American activists and Gandhi in the 1940s um, and and earlier. But a lot of your discussion of anti-apartheid in South Africa or of Nkrumah's independence movement in Ghana, these materials were quite new to me. Um, so, could you say more about how the relevant, how this transnational framing of the movement helped you speak back to the way it was being understood in political theory?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's actually it's my favorite chapter of the book. It was the my favorite to write, um, and ironically, the the one that came <laughs> the latest in the the book writing process. Um, but it really reshaped the, what I thought I was doing argumentatively and, and how I saw the materials. Um, so the, the way that it's situated in the book is that, you know, if if the problem with the way that political theory has addressed the question of civil disobedience, you know, treating it narrowly, either as a, a problem of political obligation, you know, under what conditions are citizens obligated to obey the law? And, and when do we have a mor- good moral or political reasons to violate that obligation? Um, or seeing it as Habermas does, uh, more in democratic terms, as, as a kind of mode of democratic self authorship or um, a form of constitutional patriotism. The problem of the book is, is then really to say, okay, well, what, what alternative frames um, can be uh, rehabilitated, re enlivened by, by thinking about the, the problems and, and questions and answers the civil rights activists themselves encountered and posed? Um, and so, I argue that um, that African American activists throughout the 20th century were embedded within these networks of um, of other movements and and predominantly anti colonial movements, um, and that they were they were thinking in um, in related ways about what they took to be a shared problem of racial domination and colonization. Um, and so, what emerges out of um, these Forms of transit and and activist conversations over over many years, is the idea of a global order of white supremacy that is defined by fear and violence, um, fear that that sort of motivates the the racist violence um, and and boundary boundary making violence of white civilians as well as state actors um, and. It, And and then fear on the part of the colonized or the dominated um, that that keeps them, that that holds them and and keeps them from from rising up. And so the idea that that started to develop um, is that nonviolent mass action, including um, but perhaps not limited to civil disobedience, posed a particular kind of solution or, or presented possibilities for encountering that kind of reign of fear and violence. Um, In that they, you know, they argued that it could, on the one hand, um, operate as a real mode of defiance, actually challenging this, this kind of, um, this kind of violent regime, this, this form of domination. Um, But it could also perhaps neutralize or lessen the violent backlash that something like armed struggle would inevitably, um, would inevitably, inevitably draw out. And at the same time, it, as, you know, as being a, a kind of um, avenue of real defiance, it could, per, it could perform or, or enable forms of self-emancipation. Um, so it was very important that they conceptualized it as, um, as active rather than passive, as militant rather than reformist, um, and as, as sort of res- refusing or resisting the idea that rights were to be given and that freedom could come on somebody else's timetable. And so this is the kind of language that various activists across the globe take up, um, thinking about racism within the U.S. context and racial domination, not as a domestic problem of segregation, but as a shared global condition of being colonized, dominated um, and, and inhabiting this kind of regime of, of fear and violence. Um, and, and thinking about the possibilities that that something like civil disobedience offered to reformulate relations between citizens. So one way that I talk about it is that it's not just sort of appealing to white citizens. It's um, it's trying to demand that their own um, their own transformation as well, with the idea that to make the U.S. into a, a, a democratically decolonized space, white citizens would would also have to become something else. So it um, for me in in reading it, it's um, it's a much more transformative politics and and a, a, a much more explicitly decolonial or anti colonial politics than than I think civil disobedience is usually conceptualized.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so I want to come back to this uh, idea about praxis in, in a second. But w- one thing I, I did um, want to ask about the, these networks. Um, is there anything uh, distinctive about the kinds of networks that exist around the idea of civil disobedience? Because this is also a period, of course, when you have communist internationalism, um, more militant forms of anti-colonialism as well. Um, I mean, a figure like W.E.B. Du Bois, I think, is, who, who comes in and out of the story in the book, is someone who flirts with all of these in, at different points in his career. Um, so it is Do people who, uh, African-American activists in particular who connect with other anti-colonial movements trying to think about civil disobedience, are they a distinct group from, um, other members of, um, anti-colonial, you know, other kinds of politics that are happening in this kind of moment of anti-colonial internationalism?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question, um, I would say distinct, but not fully distinct. So I think about it as as overlapping circles or as distinct groups, perhaps, but with frayed edges. Um, So I think one one thing that is enabled by by looking at civil disobedience within this global anti-colonial context is that it re-embeds the question of nonviolence, the question of uh, civil disobedience, back within a shared conversation um, that is wider than that than that circle, that it that includes people um, arguing for armed struggle and various not nonviolent or violent forms of uprising, that includes um, alternative political formulations offered by socialism and communism. Um, th- this is there's a way in which this is actually part of a, a broader shared conversation that I think is completely kept out of view if civil disobedience is made domestic constitutional democratic reform. Um, So one of the moments that that I sort of briefly touch on and visit in the book is, um, you know, after after Ghana's independence, um, Nkrumah for a few years convenes these these big conferences um, that are global. There are representatives from all over the the colonized and decolonizing world, um, including representatives from the U.S., and one of the key matters is, is debate over the means of decolonization. So this is a space where activists from Alabama actually are, are in a shared room, a shared space with Fanon and um, an anti-colonial activists from across the African continent, um, all thinking about the means of decolonization. Um, and there's you know there's rich disagreement there. Um, so this is this is one of the ways in which these circles at least overlap or collide sometimes or, or are part of we can think about them as part of a broader bigger circle um, that are thinking very expansively about what decolonization means and looks like. Um, but I do think you know the my narrower focus that the set of of activists and movements that are more specifically um, wedded to the idea of nonviolence and, and thinking about the specific kinds of means that nonviolence is, what I say in the book is that they they form their own geography. So, the, so tracing out the the kind of network or the the kind of circle of activists who are. Um, we're thinking about this. It's a specific ge- geographical constellation, a specific imaginary of the the world of nonviolent decolonization that they are involved in creating for themselves, um, and, and this would this would be a different kind of geography than it, if we were to look, you know, a few years before or. Um, before the moment that I start narrating or even a few years after. Um, So there's a temporal aspect here, or, you know, if we were to focus on um, a different, different aspect of the conversation, looking at the kinds of, the kinds of geography that gets formed, you know, by trying, thinking about Palestine along with Vietnam, along with China, along with Cuba, there are other geographies that become um, really important for these conversations at different points in time and and, um, based on which actors we prioritize. Um, And so I'll just say the the last thing on this point is that one of the things that was at stake for me in in trying to think about these actors, this specific corner of the conversation, this particular geography, um, is that sometimes within the historiography, the argument gets made that after um, after Indian independence, um, once India becomes a recognized nation state, and, and once the, the Cold War really gets going, that this particular set of African-American activists and, and the, the figures who become associated with the civil rights movement, or at least with the older generation of civil rights movement activists, that, that they're really cut off from these kinds of anti-colonial and global conversations. Um, and that, that that doesn't really come back into the civil rights movement until, you know, around 1965 and the, the early days of black power um and i i think that that's that's just historically incorrect and that something is is really missing if we fail to account for the ways that civil disobedience was always a global formulation
1: yeah and within this particular geography uh, gandhi plays a uh, plays a central role right
0: yes absolutely um so this is as as you noted this is one of the things that's that's been a little bit better a- attended i think um <laughs> attended to within conversations about civil disobedience is, is about the connections between, um, the, the civil rights movement, of course, and, and Gandhi and Gandhism um, as, as this kind of resource for theorizing and enacting nonviolence. Um, but there too, I think interestingly often, you know, what comes through in a lot of the work is, um, it is kind of ethical or moral nonviolence, or, or even in its more political formulations, and, and less the idea of Gandhi's politics is explicitly anti-colonial, and and that anti-colonialism as mattering for civil rights movement activists. Yeah.
1: yeah, there are some interesting parallels I think between the kind of domestication of the civil rights movement and the pacification of Gandhi, as it were, for lack <laughs> of a better term, into this you know peace icon that really, I think, downplays the anti-colonial dimension of it. Of oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it, it can become, you know, at, at its most extreme, it can become kind of an ethic of of self-transformation only, um, a kind of politics of moral purity um, or a, pol- a purely moral politics, a purely pacifist politics rather than a political project.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this, this uh, leads me to, to the next question I had, or next set of questions, which is, Try to get to try and get a sense of the concrete kinds of practices that were on the ground um, in the civil rights movement. And I thought a, one good way to begin this would be with a discussion of incarceration, which you pick up in, in um, the later uh, second half of the book. Um, so, ha- how was incarceration perceived by activists on the ground, and what role did the prison play in the civil rights imagination?
0: Sure. So this, um, yeah, this becomes a really key um, example for me, and a, a really important way of thinking about um, both what the the problem of racial domination in the U.S. was, what what the kind of form of of the Jim Crow order was, um, and then also thinking about what the practice of of civil disobedience really was on the ground. Um, so I turned to incarceration a, as a way to start thinking about civil disobedience as a specific. Kind of practice of self emancipation. So within the within the Jim Crow order, um, the, the jail, uh, the prison, and and particularly the southern jail is sort of you know ground zero of racial terror. Um, it's where forms of state violence and forms of, of what we might think about as extra legal or vigil, vigilante violence, but with, you know what we might more accurately think about as forms of of deputized civilian violence. It's it's where they really meet. Um, so it's a, a site of extreme vulnerability for Black Americans, um, a, a site of extreme forms of domination and violence. And so um, within that context, um, I think setting it up in that way, taking stock of, of the, the real dimensions of, of racist violence in the U.S. at that time, um, it becomes no longer really um, Really tenable to think about the what we might think of as a kind of routine or ordinary part of civil disobedience, which is going to jail afterward, allowing yourself to be arrested and accepting um, legal punishment, accepting incarceration. We can no longer really think about that as just as so ordinary, um, or as, as political theorists do. I think often um, as communicating a, a kind of allegiance to to the given order, and so in um, The the particular example that I turn to is um, the the student sit-in movement in 1960 and 61, um, as well as the Freedom Rides, through which activists start to articulate this idea, this principle of what they call jail no bail. Um, which is sort of going a step further than just allowing yourself to be arrested and incarcerated, but actually um, opting into the harsher of the two punishments that you're offered. So rather than than paying out bail, um, allowing yourself to be released on bail, serving out the the length of your jail sentence instead. And looking at the the archives and the interviews that activists gave, their oral histories, um, the kinds of statements they made at the time, the rationale for doing this um, was was really to um, to enact and to perform a kind of courageous defiance, um, to show that you were not afraid even of death, um, to kind of face down your oppressor in in the under the harshest conditions and in the moment in which they they exerted the most power over you, um, and to use that as a way to build the movement, build solidarity, um, and, and sort of signal an end to domination. Um, and so in this way, it becomes for me, a practice of self-liberation rather than, than a kind of, um, form of fidelity to law as, as Rawls would call it.
1: Yeah. So, de- I mean, that's, uh, in incarceration then, um, play into political theories, understanding of civil disobedience, just to continue with this Rawls point, right? Like, um, the incarceration is seen as a way to make people aware of the law and not to achieve any other end.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's right. It, um, you know, actually for Rawls it it serves a a few purposes. Um, I think all of which are, are sort of illustrative of the way that he thinks about civil disobedience. So one purpose that he has in mind and that's, you know, um, it's, it's wider than just Rawls, lots of, lots of philosophers argue this way. Um, so one thing that allowing yourself to be jailed does is communicates that you're sincere, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't do that unless you really meant, unless you were really attached to your goals and really, really thought they were important. Um, and so what Rawls says is that it's it's really difficult actually to to demonstrate your sincerity to others. Um, You know, you're you're acting in the public before strangers, and they have no reason to take you in good faith unless you give them a reason. And this is the specific form of reason that you give. So that's one way of thinking about the importance of incarceration. Um, The other, as you suggest, has more explicitly to do with the law, which is that um, this is the way for Rawls that you show that even though you are purposely breaking a law, even though you're you're disputing some aspect of the legal um, as well as the political order, um, by accepting arrest and incarceration, you show that you're not actually rebelling against the entirety of the legal or political order. You're you're just taking issue with a part of it. And so Mm -hmm. um, this is how you distinguish yourself either on the the one hand from uh, somebody who would break the law as a crime or somebody who disputes the entirety of the order and is therefore revolutionary, um, and so this is this is the way of fitting civil disobedience into this kind of uh, democratic reform mode.
1: And uh, is it, something like the jail no bail campaign? It's doing neither of those things. Is that am, am I correct in, in saying that that it's um, it's not interested in either accepting the order on its own terms or just rejecting it outright, but it's trying to use it the institution of the prison for some other, in other politics altogether.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that that's right. I think, you know, in one regard, you know, the entirety of the Jim Crow order is being disputed. Um, but th- there's something more than, than just kind of blanket refusal going on there. Um, the, the institution is being used for its symbolic power, for its personal power, for its political power. It's being used for movement building. It's being used sort of ethically as a form of self-transformation um, and self-liberation. It, it's got all of these different these different modes. And then you know one thing that I talk about is the way that activists were able to turn um, turn jails and prisons themselves into sites of protest, either within them by, um, by refusing to work or undertaking hunger strikes when they were mistreated, or by, um, by encouraging and facilitating solidarity protests and protests that happened on the site of prisons. Um, where, where people would come and pick it and so you, you know in this way what was really you know the entire system of law and order was what was what was being disputed and what was being um, being resisted this you know not just the, the the specific segregation order that was that was perhaps the specific matter that got activists arrested but the entire system of you know racist courts and you um, and political show trials and abuse within prisons, you know, the the entire the entire criminal justice apparatus that was so attached and shot through with with racial violence.
1: Yeah, I mean, and the theme of solidarity is so central to the kind of moral imagination at play uh, play here. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that term. Um, is it a critique of individualism? Does it have a fundamentally religious roots?
0: Uh, sorry, clarify. i um, um...
1: The, the theme of solidarity. The 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 term solidarity often comes up quite a bit in uh, how we understand how the how the um, moral imagination of civil rights activists is uh, being described. And I'm just wondering what the term itself meant for uh, activists on the ground. Did it have religious connotations? Was it a kind of critique of um, individualism? What kind of self transformation would solidarity entail?
0: Sure, that's a that's a great question. Um, it, you know, for for some, it did have a real religious connotation, and so particularly early, you know, um, in that kind of moment of the sit-ins and the freedom rides, there's a lot of power being built um, through particular spaces within the civil rights movement, including the Nashville student movement that were um, that were very attached to the the sort of more um, uh, Christian and religious view of nonviolence that we get. Um, through the writings of Martin Luther King Jr., and that was important to some subset of, of these activists, but but was not by any means universal. Um, so there are also more. Um, sometimes they're sort of cashed out as as strategic, but um, you know we can just think about them as as the more secular reading um, of of solidarity being forged through the act of resistance itself. That this was you know sort of. Um, Individually formative, but also formative of um, formative of a movement. Actually, you know, solidarity understood as movement building, as as uh, instigating or or helping to create new connections between individuals who were now part of something larger than themselves, and understood them were coming to understand themselves in a new way as um, as agents. I guess, I guess we might say as as people capable of transforming. A do, a, an order of domination, um, who did not have to wait for for rights to be handed down, um, but who could who could participate in mass politics and actually create a new kind of mass politics for themselves.
1: Yeah, and this also uh, leads me to a text that's uh, at the center of the book, particularly in the later chapters, which is Martin Luther King's letter uh, from a Birmingham Jail from 1963. Um, I mean, the, the text, I think we can all agree is kind of part of, um, the canon of post-war American writing, uh, but you read it as quite a transformative critique of American liberalism, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, you know, I think, um, the text is, as you said, it's part of the, the canon at this point, um. And so sometimes it's, it's read um, sort of purely in its religious mode. Martin Luther King is writing, of course, to a set of white clergy um, who had um, come out to, to sort of denounce the, the Birmingham movement as, um, quote, unwise and untimely, as not giving the, the newly elected and um, uh, so-called moderate bootwell government enough time to, to enact reforms to the segregationist order in Alabama. Um, and so he's, you know, he's in jail for violating uh, an injunction, and so he he writes a response to them, um, and so there's a lot in there that that is a critique of the church, that's a critique of religious orthodoxy, um, but it's also quite a political text that is very very critical of um, of the liberal order, as you say, um, that that makes some of these same moves that I was talking about about. Um, refusing to let the, the timeline for transformation be dictated. Um, it's quite an angry text, actually. It, it really contains a lot of rage at, at, the, um, at the sort of consistent message that uh, the dominated should, should simply wait for gradual amelioration of their condition rather than, than undertake mass politics, which is disruptive, unwise, and untimely, chaotic, rude, you know, uncivil. All of these things, and so it's a really full-throated defense of the kind of uh, disruption um, and, and powerful forms of disclosure that are offered by by disobedient protest undertaken by the dominated.
1: And how does the theme of nonviolence play play into that?
0: So nonviolence um, nonviolence for King is um, is his way of of fully refusing. Um, the, the regime of fear and violence that, as I was suggesting earlier, it, is how he thought about white supremacy. Um, so for him, um, you know, there, there's, he, he offers lots of justifications for nonviolence or lots of defenses of nonviolence. But I think one of the most important ones is that he understands uh, colonialism and racial domination to be a form of violence constitutive of the modern world. Um, and so to respond violently is to give the system exactly what it wants it's to it's to provide for the system the thing that it is best equipped to respond to that it can recognize and that it has not only the the sort of technological means to respond in you know in the form of of state violence but that, that it really has a ready ideological apparatus um that is poised to respond to violence, and particularly that is poised to respond to the perception of black violence. You know, this is already a, a sort of um, the the fear of black violence, the fear of black rebellion, is such a constitutive part of white supremacy um, that for for somebody like King to respond with violence is again to give the system exactly what it wants. And so, one of the most uh, one of the most important things about nonviolence for him is the way that it upsets the expectations um, of what of what happens, um, of what resistance looks like, um, and it, it it sort of rocks the system back on its heels. It, it provides um, uh, it provides a surprise, a shock, and within the space of that shock. Um, that's where real rethinking, real grappling, real political transformation can perhaps take place um, because there is not a ready response, because people have are forced to reflect on um, what their allegiances are, what their commitments are, the, the kinds of individuals they, they wish to be seen as um, and the kind of system they wish to inhabit.
1: And this calls to my mind um, some of King's writings on American militarism abroad oh. as well. Um, and the kind of fundamental uh, critique of, of, of uh, the military industrial state and the apparatus that that generates, right? And, and how that's been sometimes a bit written out of the image that we have of King as, as a domestic activist.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, King famously, um, when he comes out against the, the Vietnam War in 1967, he, he says that the U.S. Is, is today the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And though this you know this speech is um sometimes taken to be a, a kind of radical pivot for him speaking so explicitly about e- militarism and us imperialism in that way it's actually quite in keeping with um with some of his earlier commitments and and in fact you know looking back even at earlier sermons from um from the 1950s and early 60s he's already very direct about the problem of violence as it relates to colonialism and imperialism, imperialism, and as it relates to U.S. military power.
1: Yeah, so so the part of the goal of the movement of the demand for civil rights is also to resist conscription into the kind of military industrial machine on which America operates.
0: Yes, absolutely. That um, that one of the things that it, that this does, that one of the ways that it is both uh, personally and systemically transformative. Is that it? It refuses conscription, and therefore, you know, enables you to construct yourself as as wanting to be a different kind of citizen, someone who is not a part of that machinery. Um, and if enough people do it, it 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 uh, prevents the system from functioning that way anymore. Yeah.
1: Well, um, the final chapter of the book then moves us into some of the reaction against uh, civil disobedience in the late 1960s, both from American society at large, but also from other sections of the civil rights movement. So could you say a little bit about what happened to ideas like uh, King's about uh, decolonizing praxis as the 60s go on and as the 70s um, um, and the kind of particular problems of the 70s emerge?
0: Sure. Um, So what I, what I focus on in the last part of the book is sort of the, the discursive techniques um, that, that get used against the civil rights movement um, and particularly as, as sort of the civil rights movement um, as, as the years go on. Um, And so one way that this has been written about um, is that in the mid 1960s, the civil rights movement has, is what's sometimes called been called a, a crisis of victory you know the two big pieces of of federal legislation have been passed so they're, they're victories of a kind you know real meaningful legal reform but on the other hand um, it you know so so one way of narrating what happens to the civil rights movement is to to say they won and then didn't know what to do um, but from the activist perspective what in fact happens is that um, it becomes increasingly uh, frustrating, con- increasingly demoralizing, uh, to see just how hard they have to fight for such little gains, um, such small gains, particularly ones that that don't even begin to touch the economic order of um, of white supremacy and Jim Crow and the kinds of material deprivation that are that are at stake. And so, um, within that um, within that framework or within that moment. Um, I try to look at some of the ways that um the the some of the discursive techniques and, and the the kinds of um responses that are made to civil disobedience, particularly when it starts to um uh when people start to realize that it's happening outside of the South. So it sort of breaks the frame that the South is an exceptional space and that's the only space where there's a problem. Um so I, I look at the ways that um, you know this this move that I referenced earlier about people trying to suggest that the the time for direct action in the streets is over, and you know now it, it's time for you know the quote unquote adults to to take charge um, and handle it through Congress and, and through the courts, um, and, and then the ways that um, that nonviolent activism gets coded publicly as violent and, and therefore dismissible, punishable um kind of uncitizenly behavior um and and so this you know activists in real time see this happening feel this happening and it it seems to undercut one of the um one of the sort of transformative purposes or or one of the ideas that um one of the possibilities that civil disobedience seemed to offer through this mode of decolonizing praxis, which is not just to transform the participants in civil disobedience themselves, not just to transform Black activists, but to actually turn white citizens into democratic subjects, to, you know, into people capable of and desirous, desiring of ha- enjoying uh, relations of mutuality um, and reciprocity with fellow Black citizens. Um, that just doesn't seem to be happening. (laughs) Um, and so there's a real, um, disenchantment with it. Um, and, and it's sort of, uh, civil disobedience becomes, uh, less and less taken up, less and less a part of the movement, um, at, you know, through, you know, really starting in, in the late sixties, um, it, it. it, there's just a, a kind of moment of reckoning and it just can't seem to fully bear the weight that it's supposed to bear.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things I was struck by in that section also is just how oh. when um, pra- uh, forms of civil disobedience that were practiced in, say, Mississippi in the Jim Crow South, when they moved north, as it were, <laughs> <laughs> um, how 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 much of a backlash there was. I mean, you have this great case study of Brooklyn um uh, of the, the the chapter of core in brooklyn if i'm not mistaken if i remember correctly um and how the new york city administration uh, you know also tried to clamp down on on what it saw as an unnecessary and, and intrusive civil disobedience movement um so there is the sense that that there is th- there is a backlash in the north um in the 70s and and there isn't just the what one would expect which would be a backlash in the in, in the remnants of the jim crow south
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, that case study, I think, is is illustrative for a range of reasons. You know, it's in sort of liberal New York City, um, but, uh, you know, in a space where where Brooklyn Court, you know, they'd been fighting for the same things, um, integrated schools, um, integrated jobs, sanitation in their neighborhoods. They've been rent striking. You know, they've they been, ha- been having these same battles. Um and so it, you know it's it's illustrative to see the kind of backlash emerging out of out of new york city but also you know one of the things that i think this example shows given that that the site of protest is is the world's fair though the world's fair um, in 1964 65 um it is the the kind of um, delegitimizing or or illegitimacy of of a site that is non governmental so um, i think it it illustrates, in some ways, how narrow the the public imagination, even at the time of what of what an era of segregation, of what the Jim Crow order was, and and what kinds of institutions um, and and norms and and spaces were uh, it, it constituted it. Um, and it, it just seemed like you know a, a World's Fair, this commercial space that's about consumer pleasure. Um, you know, people claimed that it it had no relation; it, it had nothing to do with racial domination. Um, while activists were trying very hard to to enumerate the ways that it did, the ways that um, a, a world of white consumer pleasure and um, and commercial progress and commercial prosperity was actually predicated on all kinds of deprivation for for Black folks for for Puerto Rican. So in New York, you know, for all of these other racialized groups, um and so they were they were trying to articulate how this fit into this constellation of the jim Crow order um but but even at the time, it was just uh, very narrowly construed what counted as as a site of racial domination,
1: yeah, and a case like that, I think really illustrated for me the ways in which this book is so extremely timely i mean. None of us, of course, could have predicted the past year and a half, but we've seen not just a reckoning with America's racial past, but also quite a striking cascade of citizens' protests across the world. And I'm wondering if all of this that has happened over the past year informed your approach to the material that you address in the book.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I I was trying to write, so I,
1: um,
0: I was finishing the book last May um, but like really <laughs> putting the finishing touches on the epilogue, writing the last words of the book um, right as the George Floyd protests and the the, the George floyd uprising was, was underway and um, and so it was very much on my mind and it it, it just felt like a really intense time <laughs> to be finishing this material and thinking about mass nonviolence and, and what role it might it might play um, particularly, you know, Given what we were just talking about, the the kind of space of disenchantment um, and disempowerment that that to some extent the the book ends with in in chapter five, um, you, you know, really really had my head spinning about how to think about it now, and so you know, I mean, one of the things that that is a sort of core takeaway for me and that I continue to think about is is just the uses of the civil rights example and and the ways that it. Um, that it both comes back to kind of haunt contemporary movements as a kind of disciplining example, um, the sort of myth of the movement always as a measuring stick to which no contemporary movement can ever measure up because it's mythical, um, but also that that I genuinely do think there are real resources here for thinking about the radical and transformative potential of mass nonviolence. Um, But there's a caveat there, which is that I think, you know, a a key takeaway for me about thinking with and about these activists from the civil rights movement is that I really think, you know, again, in concert with anti-colonial activists, they really reinvented civil disobedience for themselves. They they made it a thing that could speak to what they saw as the conditions of their time. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think... I think that same thing both is happening now and would have to be the way that we would view contemporary movements as well. Is not, you know, is decolonizing praxis happening now? But what questions are activists asking about the the conditions that they face, and what are they saying? What are they suggesting about the means that can can speak to them? Can speak to this context?
1: Yeah, and the economic and political conditions of 2021 are just so radically different. Even as there are obviously continuities, but um, there are So civil disobedience is just responding to a different world than existed in 1961.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, given our earlier
1: conversation
0: about incarceration, I mean, I think there are real questions about, <laughs> about something like jail, no bail, if you were to just sort of transport it into our time and place, given that the entire apparatus of mass incarcer- incarceration is sort of built after the moment of this book um, in real reaction to um, a shifting racial order, and um, you know, thinking about mass jailing, I'm just you know, it's, it's very unclear whether where, whether it could or would have the same the same valence, the same meaning, um, the same potentialities now.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, uh, what are you working on now for your next project?
0: Um so I've got a, a couple of irons in the fire mostly smaller things at the moment um that it sort of emerged out of this book so I you know thinking about and with this idea of decolonizing praxis um I've been thinking about the the articulations of the US as as it um internally colonized um as an example of internal colonialism um, and so I've been working on the ways that that idea um, gets articulated through particularly activist practices within the civil rights movement, um, as they as they organized against the Vietnam War, um, and the ways that this, the ways that they were thinking about colonization and colonialism can can sort of take us past uh, a politics that that sees uh, the U.S. as a as an analog to quote unquote real colonialism, but as colonial in its own right. Um, and then I'm also working on um, thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. and Frantz Fanon together as, as both articulating separate pieces of, of a practice of grassroots decolonization.
1: Oh, that sounds really fascinating um, and, and long overdue, I think, <laughs> as a project. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Erin. Uh, this was a, a real pleasure. Um, I, I think this is a beautiful book and it's really important. I, I really encourage everyone to read Seeing Like an activist.
0: Thank you so much, Tejas. This was a real pleasure. Um, Thank you for your questions and for, for having me on.